1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we're concluding this letter. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, you, you have to think back to how this church was planted to kind of understand the way in which Paul concludes this letter. You know, the way he concludes it is kind of rapid fire. He covers what would probably take us, if we would break it down even further, probably 10 to 12 weeks to go through each subject that he brings out. And so there's rapid fire uh, uh, ad- admonishing and encouragements that he gives when he closes this letter. But I believe the reason he's doing that is because he didn't get a chance to stay at this church plant for two, three, four years to really do some deep pastoral work in this church. As we remember back in the book of Acts, the persecution had, had, had hit in, in the area where he was planting this church. And he had to leave in the middle of the night and get out of Dodge for fear of his life. And so he didn't have a chance to really do some deep pastoral work. And so I feel like with the tone of this ending, it's like he's coming at them and he's saying, I'm laying it all out and I'm going to give you as much information as I possibly can. And it really reminds me of kind of what I, what I wrote down in my, in my introduction, kind of like a deathbed instruction. You know, like if you ever thought about what, what would you want to say on your deathbed? to your loved ones, if you had one final opportunity to speak to them, you know, what would you want to say? You know, I titled the the message, you know, on on your notes there, the most important things. And I think that's what you'd want to say, right? What are the most important things that are on my heart that I want to get across to you before I I die and be with Jesus? And so I think that's kind of the feel that I, that I get here with, with Paul is that he's trying to get it all out because He does not know if this is his last communication with this church. He has no way of knowing that as we're going to start next week, his second letter. He he didn't know that he was going to possibly be able to write a second letter to them. So it's his last opportunity. And, you know, with the Apostle Paul's writings, especially with the pastoral writings, he's specifically trying to build the local church. He's trying to encourage pastors. He's trying to build the church. The local church is his passion, and he wants to see it thrive. He wants to see it grow. And he wants to see these local churches who are in the midst of persecution to persevere and to be strong and to make an impact in their world. And so this is kind of where it ends, around these themes. And so there's kind of three encouragements that that he gives that we're going to focus on. But there are things that we've already covered in, in this book. We've already covered them, but he comes back around and he's summarizing and he's emphasizing and he's giving it one more shot as he leaves. So let's, let's read the, the, the verses and then we'll go, go back through it. There's three, I think, three main categories of, of, of encouragements for us. And, and it's encouragements for us as a church. So it was encouragements for this church. But as we're reading it today, it applies to us too. So, let's read these verses. So it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to, and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
he, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is, we could stop right there. I preach a message on that one right there. That is powerful. I love that. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Anybody do some holy kissing? I'm not going to say anything else right there. I put you under oath before the Lord. This is interesting right here. Verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Look what he's saying there. He's saying, I'm I'm making sure I'm putting you under oath before the Lord that you read this letter. See how serious he is? Like, you better do this because God's going to get you if you don't. That's what he was really saying there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that's the end of the letter. So do you guys follow what I'm saying there about the ending? I mean, look at all the subjects right there. I mean, it's just one after the other after the other. When I first read it a few days ago, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to just finish the letter or am I going to just focus on a few verses? But I feel like there's three main categories that, that I kind of saw there that we can bring out. What are the most important things when we think about a local church? And again, this is Paul's context, he wants healthy churches. He wants this church that he planted in the middle of persecution to make it. And God wants that for our church. He wants our church to make it, to be successful, to be prosperous. But there's some key ingredients that are necessary in every church. If a church is going to be faithful, if a church is going to be fruitful, it's going to take some key ingredients. And so I just see three categories here. So the first one is this. Godly leaders should be valued. Godly leaders should be valued. Let's read those verses again, 12 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so that's an interesting admonition there. It's an interesting admonition for me to talk about as a pastor. Because it's an encouragement for you to love me. It's encouragement for you to respect me. So it's kind of a little awkward, right? You need to respect me and you need to honor me. I mean, that, that, that's, I don't believe that's the heart of what he's saying here, like, you know, this domineering picture. But I think there's two, there's, there's five admonitions that he's giving in these verses. Three of them are for the leaders and the pastors. Two of them are for the church. So we're going to start with the leaders first. So the main point is that godly leaders should be valued, but he specifically calls out the leaders and the congregation in unique ways. The first, the three ways in which he calls out the uh, pastors is this. He keyed in on three words. Let's put those verses back up, Chuck. He says, he says to the brothers, this is the, the first admonition to, to the church to respect, but he says, respect those leaders, pastors who labor, who are over you, and who admonish you. So there's three things he's talking to the pastors. He knows he's talking to those that he left in charge. He left some people in charge, some leaders in charge of this church. And he's telling them that you need to work. You need to give oversight. And you need to admonish or teach. Those are the three things. Work, give oversight, and teach. So what does it mean, that word work, that word labor? It, it, it means to work. It means that as leaders, we're called to sweat. And when you study that word labor out and work, it means to labor, to work to the point of exhaustion. That's what it means. And so my job 
And Pastor Renee's job and all the other pastors on staff and leaders, is it's our responsibility to work, to labor. But what does our work center on? It centers on the teaching of God's word. So that, that's why when I get ready to prepare to preach, I don't, I don't go into my study a half hour before service starts and say, here, let, let me throw something together here real quick to give to the people so they can be encouraged. No, I, I, I spend three, four, five days. He's, he's probably faster at it now. He's been doing it for 38 years. But it takes me a little longer because I'm still learning. But I take four or five days to really labor and to work and to dig in there. But I'm doing it because... I'm doing it as unto the Lord, and I'm doing it because I love Him, and I'm doing it because I love you. I'm working, I'm laboring. That is the primary responsibility of a pastor. When you look at the responsibilities of pastors in Timothy and in Titus, it talks about uh, there's 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 uh, several character qualities that are brought out. You know, a pastor must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must not, he must not be arrogant, must not be prideful. He, he must not have a temper. He must be hospitable. And it goes on to, and, and describes a bunch of character qualities, but there's one skill, one gift, only one gifting, and it says he must be apt or able to teach. That's the primary gifting. And so, that's what we work at. That's what, that's what, Day in and day out, I'm thinking, I'm considering, I'm praying, I'm staying before the Lord, I'm laboring, thinking, God, what is it that you want to speak to your people? What is it that that is on your heart that I can be your spokesman to communicate? And so that's what it means to work. We labor in prayer. We labor in study of God's word so we can deliver God's word to you. And it's, it's, it's my privilege. It's our privilege. It's, it's my joy. I would do this for free. I would do this, I would do this I would do this anywhere and everywhere that God would open a door for me to do it because it is the drive and the passion of my heart to come before God, understand, read the text, understand the text, let it, let there be passion birthed in my heart through the text and to open my mouth and let it come out and impact your hearts because I know the power of God's word. God's word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to pierce our hearts and cut and divide and dissect who we really are and change us and sanctify us. So as a result of that, that's what we do. We are called to work. What, what does it mean, the second admonition? It's to, it, it, he says it's to give oversight. Give oversight, to, to be over. And that means to bring leadership. That means to bring leadership. Somebody has to lead. Somebody's got to be a leader. You know, I, I've heard stories of churches that have been planted and they've had an idea that they would have co, co-leaders, co-pastors, and that there wouldn't be a single leader of a church. And for the most part, stories that have heard like that, that have heard like that have never really worked. There has to be a leader that gives oversight that says, here's the direction. Here's the vision. Here's where we're going. Here's what God has called us to do. And he blazes a trail and he moves forward and he, and he brings along those that God has called him to shepherd. That's what pastors and shepherds do. They work to the point of exhaustion to, to, to love God, to pray, to study God's word and to give oversight and leadership and direction to God's church. And then thirdly, I've kind of talked about it, they're, they're called to admonish. And to teach God's word. That is the primary gifting of pastors. And so this is what Paul is admonishing to the ones that would be listening that he knows he left in charge. He left people in charge and he's telling them this is what you're called to do. But then then, then he also says to the 
people in the church, you need to respect them. And you need to esteem them very highly in love for their work. What that means is, is because of their work, because of their labor, you need to esteem them very highly. So that's your challenge. You know, if, if, if I would, if I would, uh, ask you guys, if you've ever been, now some of you have been a part of this church for a long time, but some of you came from other churches and you've been, you're like a transplant. God's called you here now. And maybe some of you have been a part of churches where there was conflict between leadership and members, conflict between the pastor and the church. And I believe this is the fear of the Apostle Paul because he knows that churches rise and fall based upon how much freedom the pastor has to lead in the way God's called him to do and if people are actually going to follow. And there is nothing more difficult in the church than dissension and disunity and bickering and infighting and challenges to the, the pastoral authority that God has given to. And, and you know what it does? It's a strategy of the enemy to cripple a church from the great commission that God has called us to. And so this is, I, I see this in this encouragement that Paul is saying to the church. He's telling the church, he's telling this young church that's in persecution, look, I've placed, God has placed people over you and they're going to work. And they're going to labor and they're going to sweat and they're going to get before God and they're going to lead you and they're going to teach God's word to you. And if you want that to be fruitful, if you want this church to grow, you're going to have to respect their authority. This is not a domineering authority. And, and I thought about bringing up all kind of scriptures about how pastors are to lead with the servant's heart and not be overbearing or domineering and not lording their leadership over. Obviously, that's how we're called to lead. But if if the church is not able to respect and esteem very highly, then the enemy wins and the church is crippled. And so this it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing. I feel the challenges I'm even speaking about. It's difficult to talk about because it's like I'm asking you to do something that that maybe sometimes can be challenging. You know, there may be times in the life of this church after Pastor Renee leaves that uh, you might not agree with something that I say or do. What are you going to do about it? You know, it's bound to happen. As Pastor Renee says, his phrase, he always says, he says, if I haven't offended you, give it time. I'm, I'm, I'm coming for you, right? It's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to offend you eventually, right? So, so what do we do? I've experienced it. I've been in churches too, where I've had to learn to submit, to respect, to honor the leader, even when I disagreed with that leader. That, that that's a calling that we all have. You know, I, I remember. I remember a church that I was at. Now, part of this is because of my immaturity when I was younger. And I just thought I knew a lot. And the Lord taught me and corrected me and reminded me that I didn't. Reminded me that I had a long way to go. And he made me sit. And he made me stay. And he made me trust him. And to stay in an environment that I didn't agree with. Things were not heretical. It wasn't, there wasn't sin going around. But it was just differences. Differences of opinion. Differences of philosophy of ministry. But I stayed because I had a view of respect for authority and had a view of honoring God's people that he's placed in charge over the church. So this is challenging, but it's so very important. So my responsibility and our responsibility as pastors is to be godly, to, to walk in holiness, to pray, to seek for direction, to give good, clear vision, to teach God's word faithfully, and then we trust everything else to God. It's kind of like we're going to blaze a trail 
And if you come, you come. We're going to lead, and if you follow, you follow. We're going to honor God with our life, and, and, and as we're following Christ, we're hoping that you follow us as we follow Christ, as Paul says. So this is so important to every church. It's important to our church. And I believe this is one of the strongest admonitions that he gives in this beginning part, is that leadership in the church matters. And how leaders lead matter. It matters. And how people of the church follow really matters. The primary emphasis that Paul is giving here is on the responsibility that pastors and leaders have to live godly lives and to lead well those God has entrusted to their care. Having a healthy church starts right here. Paul knows that if the church at Thessalonica is going to be fruitful for the gospel, it must have strong, godly leadership. And that leadership must be empowered. You know what happens when people esteem you highly and respect and support you? It empowers leaders to lead. And that leadership must be empowered to lead well by a congregation that loves and respects its, its leaders. Amen. All right, we're done with that point. <laughs> let's, let's, move on. let's move on to the second one. Um, let's, let's look at verses 14 and 15. It says here, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to everyone and to, to one another and to everyone. So I, I kind of keyed in on these words. Encourage, help, patient, repay no one evil for evil, seek to do good. And this is kind of a theme that you see that we've read that I've preached a message on previously in this study. Is that the, the second encouragement, I, I kind of phrased it like this. Brotherly love should be prioritized. So godly leaders should be valued. Secondly, brotherly love should be Prioritize. Paul is encouraging the church to prioritize loving one another. You know how important that is? That we love one another? That we, that we, that, that we seek, let's put, let's, let's put that text back up, Chuck, 14 and 15. That we encourage the faint-hearted. We help the weak. We're patient. We're kind. We, we, we repay no one evil for evil. We seek to do good for, to one another. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a reflection of a body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are united together for one purpose, centered around the love of Christ. That's such a great picture of what we're called to do. And I believe that the reason the Apostle Paul is ending on this point is because he understands that just like it's important to have godly leaders leading a church, it is just as important that the people in the church, the godly leaders and the people all together are loving one another. That they're supporting one another. That they're praying for the weak. This is why we love the prayer time. Every Wednesday. Every Sunday. Because that's a part of what we do. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting you guys over here. I'm going to look at you. I'm sorry. You guys are over there. You guys doing good? Okay, good. Um, that's why we pray Wednesday and Sunday. It's because we love to help the weak, to encourage, to pray for, to, to touch and to agree with the issues that you're dealing with. It's, it's because that's what we're called to do. And this is why brothers and sisters come up every week. And we touch, we agree, we pray, we cry with you. We weep with you. We rejoice with you when you come up and you say, I got a testimony about God's faithfulness. It's such a beautiful picture. And you know, I, when I talked about this subject, it was several weeks back about what happens when a church does this. Um, I talked about how this is, this, is, this is such a great witness into the community, to the world. 
And this is what John says. John 13, uh, 34 through 35 says this. Jesus said this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. That's, that, that, that'll preach right there, right? How are we to love? Man, you really want me to love each other? Love my brother and sister like you loved me? Well, how did you love me, Jesus? Do we really want to start doing that? Like, that is intense. Is that what God is calling us to? He's actually calling me to love Brother Barry like he loved me and laid his life down for me? How powerful is that? That's, that's challenging. That's challenging to all of us. That means that we're called to lay down our lives for one another. To have that heart of total devotion to your care, concern for you. That's, that's, that's powerful. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this type of love, all people will know that you are my disciples. Man, that is so good. All people will know that you're my disciples because you love like me. People will know that you're a follower of Jesus because you look like him, you act like him, you love like him. If you have love for one another. Amen? The gospel is advanced in power when brothers and sisters in Christ come together in unity. When they lay aside their differences and opinions for the purpose of exalting Christ. Amen? You know, and, and that, that's what... So if we were to ask what, what, what makes it difficult to love one another and to love each other like Jesus loved us, what would we say would be the greatest challenge? It's our differences and our opinions. And you know, sometimes you have a different opinion than me. You know, look, when, when Tina and that team leaves to go on Saturday morning for the outreach, I've been on enough mission trips and I've been on enough outreach trips to know that you're not always happy with everything that happens. Somebody's going to make a decision to do this or to do that, to go that direction, and it's going to rub you the wrong way. And so you're going to have a, a temptation to push back against the leadership that's leading, to, 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 to get offended, to get bothered. And you know what happens? You lose all the joy and the blessing that, 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 that God is wanting to flow through your life to minister to others. Because you're just thinking about your opinion, you're thinking about your ideas and, and how it should be done. And it's, that is a real life challenge. It is hard to lay down our differences. It's hard to say, you know what? I don't, I, I don't agree with what you're saying there, but I know that you're not my enemy. You know, I think about that with our marriage, with, with marriages, you know. I think sometimes in our marriages we have to remind ourselves, my spouse is not my enemy. Right? I'm not saying that just to be funny, but it's true. Yeah, when you're in the middle of a fight and it's a, a knockout, knockdown, drag out fight and you're frustrated, you can be tempted to believe by the enemy that your spouse is your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. The devil is your enemy. And the devil that's trying to bring a wedge between you is your enemy. And the devil that tries to bring a wedge between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, he is our enemy. So if we're going to fight against anybody. We're going to fight against the, the devil and his plan. And again... The Apostle Paul is thinking about the forward progress of the church. How can this church be successful? You've got to have godly leaders who are allowed to leave and empowered and, and empower to lead. And then you've got to have a church that loves one another, that walks in unity, that prays for one another, that doesn't allow the enemy to hinder their mission because of infighting and bickering and differences of opinions. Such a powerful truth. I, I was reading in Philippians chapter 2 the last couple of days. I just want to read this. I won't expound too much on it, but it just kind of further emphasizes what we're saying. And 
I just believe this is, this is such a great theme verse for any church. And you see it through the filter of the local church. Let's look at this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at that. Look at that. Look at those phrases. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. You know what? That first section is it's, it's describing our state of being. This is who we are. We are in unity because our heart in view of Christ, that's what it says there. If there's any encouragement in Christ, Christ is the motivation. Because Christ has our heart. This is our state of being. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, unity together. That's our state of being. What is, and so then as a result of our state of being, what is our state of doing? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, everything we just described here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Stop right there for a second. Think about that phrase there. He says, have this mind. All these things we just talked about. And he says, it's yours. It is already yours. He's telling him, you need to have this mind. But then he says, it's yours. How is it yours? Because you're in Christ Jesus. So if you have the mind of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and he has resurrected you from darkness to light, then that means that you have his heart. And those times that you don't act like Christ, that you don't have the same mind, that, that you don't prefer others above yourself, it's, it's those moments where your flesh is, has not been trained yet. And you're, and you're pushing down that, that mind of Christ that God is trying to perfect in you. But you have it. It's in you. You're a new creation in Christ, so you already have this mind. Because God has your heart. That's so good. That's so powerful. Let's finish the verses here. Verse 6. Let's go back to verse 5 so I can finish that thought there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore... Because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. So, my first two thoughts here that Paul is is concluding with, first two encouragements, is that we need to value godly leaders. Then secondly, we, we, we must prioritize loving one another. Let's look back at the text here, verses 16 through 22, this third encouragement. Kind of like a rapid fire little thing here. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And so, you know, I could preach a message on all of those individual points. We could go through all of them. That we should pray without ceasing. What does that mean to pray without ceasing? It means to live in a position and a posture of prayer always. 
Doesn't mean that you've got to pray 24 hours a day, but it means be in a position of prayer always. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. What does that mean to not despise prophecies? Well, when you study that word prophecies out, it's, there's two different meanings to it. It's, it, it, could, it, it primarily means that, this is a, that God's word is a prophetic word. To, to prophesy means to, to, to declare. And so God's word is a prophecy. So when I, right now I'm preaching God's word. I'm prophesying God's word. But it also has the meaning of a prophetic word where, where a man of God, a prophet of God can, can declare a revelation from, from God to his people. And, and it's interesting, he, he says here, but test everything. So I think there's two meanings to this idea of testing. So it means that whenever I preach or any other pastor prophesies God's word to you, teaches God's word, test everything. Don't just, don't just assume that it's true or that it's right, but be a diligent studier of God's word and test it. And then also it means... Don't be silly and going around chasing prophets all over the world and trying to get a prophecy and and just follow your life after somebody telling you that God said this and God said that. Test everything. And how do we test if somebody comes up to you and says, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says to you. What's what's the number one thing that we test it with? Test it with God's word. If somebody tells you, thus saith the Lord, it better be lining up with thus saith the Lord right here. Because if it doesn't line up with thus saith the Lord, the objective truth of God's word, then it's not true. And you don't need to follow it. You need to reject it. But he says there, don't quench the spirit. And God, if God wants to speak to you, he's going to speak to you. He'll use a donkey if he has to, right? Right? But test everything. Hold fast. So, so we hold fast to what is good. We hold fast to what is good. We hold fast to the truth that God has revealed to us that lines up with his word. And then I think this last verse kind of covers everything that we just covered here in these verses. Abstain from every form of evil. What, so what's he saying there? Live a, right, live a godly life. So this last encouragement here is that, thirdly, right living should be encouraged. Godly leaders should be valued. Brotherly love should be prioritized. And right living should be encouraged. Paul is, rem- is reminding the church that right living matters. It matters how you live. Now, I think some people get this backwards. Some, some people think that right living is the priority and that's what earns me favor with God. So I have to live right so God will be pleased with me. You know, the opposite is actually true. The Bible says it is impossible to please God without faith. So you could be living rightly outside of faith in Jesus Christ and it profits you nothing. So when you, by faith, place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your right living pleases God. You guys follow that? That's what it means that it's impossible to please God without faith. It takes faith in Jesus Christ to please God. And the right living that flows out of that is right living that pleases God because it's done in faith. It's the idea of, of root and fruit. When the root of our life is in Jesus Christ then the fruit of our life is going to be good works. You know, if somebody claims to be a believer, if they say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and they don't have right living, they're deceived. If there's no evidence in their life of consistent lifestyle change, then they've deceived themselves. A believer in Jesus Christ will 
have changed desires that will lead to right living. And so to, to show you that truth in scripture, let's look at first John. This is a um, very powerful scripture here. It's a very confronting portion of scripture, first John one, five through ten. And again, this is contrasting those who say, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. And it contrasts those who really believe and those who don't. Let's, let's look at what John is saying here. This is the message we have heard from him, speaking of Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light. He's contrasting light and darkness. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, if I say I'm a Christian, while if I say I have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, what does it say there? We lie. What does it mean while we walk in darkness? It means the consistent pattern of your life, the lifestyle of your life. It's not saying that if I say I'm a believer and I make a mistake. That's not what it's saying because we all know Christian sin, right? We still make mistakes. The picture that John is painting there is that if we say that we are of the light and God is light and the pattern of our life is darkness, we lie and do not practice that practice the truth. The practice of our life is not truthful. Such a powerful picture there. But if we walk in the light, the consist we walk, the pattern of our life is in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. We can claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And now he comes back again. He says it a different way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what's he saying there? If somebody says, I don't have sin, what is sin? There is no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Somebody not willing to admit that they have sins in their life is not a believer in Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, Christians confess their sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, he ends on the contrast one more time. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Root and fruit. You can say all day long that you're a believer. You can say all day long that you follow Christ. But if the consistent pattern of your life doesn't produce right living, then, then you're not a believer. And the Apostle Paul in this third encouragement is reminding the church, reminding the pastors and the leaders and reminding the congregation, right living matters. Because it, here's one key of why it matters. It separates the sheep from the goats. It's, you're able to recognize who, who am I supposed to be evangelizing? Who is who am I supposed to be preaching the gospel message to or who is actually a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you know that any given Sunday when this church is filled, there are believers here and there are non-believers here. It's just the way it happens. It happens at every church around the world. There can be a mixture of believers and non-believers. And it's so important that we articulate these clear points so people can recognize and know. And this is why we do that. So people can know they can do a test Test, see if you're in the faith. Test, test your heart, recognize, see. And it's a simple test. Have your desires changed? Have you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you made him your Lord? And if you have, you don't desire to sin. And you want to please him and your life changes. Paul knows 
that a church is only as effective as its witness will allow. Paul knows that the church is only as effective as its witness will allow. And so as a church, the third closing encouragement, admonishment, is that we would value right living. That we would seek to please God in the way that we live. The fourth thing, this is the way he ends the text here. This is Now this is an encouragement. Now that we've been challenged and admonished by the Apostle Paul and he's trying to encourage us in our church and our personal life, he gives us some hope. You guys ready for some hope? We need some hope, right? Paul always ends with some hope in all of his letters. And I'm going to give you some hope. Here's the hope. Number four, the source of our strength should not be forgotten. So how are we going to have a church that is filled with unified brothers and sisters in Christ that follow godly leaders, that, that live rightly and value right living? We better not forget the source of our strength. God is the source of our power. And this is what he says in verses 23 through 24 as he ends this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That word sanctify, it means to set apart unto God in holiness. To set apart unto God. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming or until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? That is a promise. God is going to do it. You may, you, you may see, maybe you're a new believer in Christ and you see all your issues. You recognize all the struggles that you have. You see your temper and, and, and your frustration and, and, and you see your weaknesses and your frailty. I want to encourage you that if your desires are changed and you pursue the Lord with all of your heart, He will surely do it. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to help you to grow in Christ Jesus. He's going to help you to grow in Him. He's going to mature you. He will be faithful to present you on that day blameless before, the, before His Father. I just want to close with this. With a, I've, got a, I've got a session of Scripture that I want to read. But before I, I, I do that, I just want to read a couple of short Scriptures to encourage us with. This is Luke 22. This is Jesus talking to Simon before Simon Peter rejected Jesus. And listen to what he says here. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked for you or demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because of that phrase right there. But I have prayed for you. That's what Paul is saying there at the end of this letter. The God of peace himself will sanctify you. That's what that means. But I have prayed for you. If you want anybody, we pray for each other down at the altar. But if I want somebody praying for me, man, Jesus himself prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 says this. Consequently, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Salvation's through Christ. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for his saints. He's praying for us. He wants you to succeed in your spiritual journey. He wants you to mature. He's praying for you. And that's why he's placed you in a body of believers for your sanctification. To sit under the consistent, relentless teaching of God's word that purifies 
your thoughts and your mind and impacts your life. He's sanctifying you through that. And he's praying that you would stick it out, that you would remain faithful, that you would not give up, that you would not allow Satan to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. What does that prayer sound like? We have evidence of what that prayer sounds like. John 17 is the Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is one of the most powerful prayer, powerful witnesses. It's a lot of verses, but we're going to read them all as we close. This is Jesus praying to the Father. It's so powerful. I am praying for them, for his disciples. Speaking specifically about those right then that were following him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is so good. Verse 20. Now we get to be a part of the prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Is that you? That's us. This is us. He was praying for his disciples right then. And then he says, verse 20, brings us all together in all of human history, everyone that is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus prays this. I did not ask for these only, but I pray also for those who believe in me through, through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, this is like John 13, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Amen? That's a a beautiful prayer. You can say amen to that prayer. That's the prayer of the Son of God for us. He is praying that we would be sanctified in truth. And did you hear a theme over and over again? He's praying that we would be one. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Pray that truth over our life. Lord, we thank you, God, that the God of peace himself is praying for us. And that he is faithful. And that he will help us to grow in maturity and grow in our faith. And God, I thank you for this church I thank you for the leaders of this church. God, I pray that you'd help us all as leaders to live godly lives, to live lives that are worthy to be followed. God, I pray that there would be unity in our church. God, I pray that there would be unity and brotherly love between us, between each other. God, that we can be a bold witness so that the world can know 
the reason for our hope. So the world can see when we go and we reach out, when they come and, and, and they see and they come in and look at us, Lord, they can see a unity and a love that is uncommon in their life. God, I pray as a result of this, that we would be fruitful in the mission that you called us to. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.